Do take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, verses we read earlier, beginning at verse 36. We're bombarded if you read social media, like Face, whatever it is, uh, Twitter, all these things that come in in the morning. My family tell me I, I read it too much and I have to cut down my daily intake. But if you read that stuff, you're constantly being bombarded with statistics. And uh, some of my friends globally have a habit of reposting something they've read in the daily newspaper or something that's been said on the BBC. And uh, people delight to post some of these statistics. For example, uh, a recent survey of young people said that most of them rely, rather than on religion, they rely on a secular trinity of themselves, their family, and friends to give meaning to their life. Another survey said that people born after 1982 have only a faded cultural memory of Christianity. Or another one, fewer than one in five young people believes in a God who created the world and hears our prayers. Another survey, teenagers were more likely to believe in the nicer parts of religion than about those that talk about the devil and punishment. Now, many of these statistics, of course, only reach the light of day on bad news days when, you know, 95-year-old comedians dies or, or Europe won the Ryder Cup, which never happens. Uh, uh, that, when those bad days are there, then that's when all of these statistics tend to come out. In Peter Pan, just to get into literary stuff here for a moment, in Peter Pan, every time someone says, I don't believe in fairies, a fairy dies. But we can't treat God like that. Just because someone says, I don't believe in God, God doesn't go away. That's the problem. If he went away, then we wouldn't have the issues that we face day and daily in our world and in our society, and people would not be so frustrated with Christianity if, in fact, just by saying to themselves, I don't believe it's true, made it disappear. Now, this little section that we've read from John 12 is actually a very pivotal section. It's maybe a part you don't know very well, uh, or if you're a tenth person, of course, you know it inside out, but if you're a visitor, you may not know this little bit very well. It's not one of the better-known parts of John's gospel, and yet it is pivotal in, in the history of God's dealings with the world, and in particular, with the history of God's dealings with Israel. You know that God has dealt with Israel right throughout, right from the very beginning, God has dealt with Israel, and here we have God visiting Israel. And in this section, we find the last showdown between Jesus and the nation. That's really what's going on here. From now on, from this point onwards, the cross is all that there is ahead. This is the final showdown between Israel and its Messiah. Now, in this room tonight, there are people who have different uh, measures of faith. There are people here who have no faith in this room tonight. 
there are people here in this room tonight who have deficient faith, perhaps. And there are still others who have saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And it's always been like that. And in this, in this section that we've read tonight, we see that very factor borne out. People with varying kinds of faith. And those faiths, those measures of faith, are set against the background of John's gospel. And let me remind you of what John's gospel is all about, in case you've forgotten uh, the, the wood for the trees over these months. It's about the Word, that is the incarnate Word of God. Right at the very beginning of the gospel, the Word is the self-expression of God. And He's a person who has been face to face with God from all eternity. He is with God, and He is God, and He made everything, and He becomes a human being. And that Word incarnate, that enfleshed Word, has come into the world to give a full account of God, a full account of God. That's why He came into the world to give the fullest, clearest account of God that is accessible and available to men and women anywhere in the world. He is the final word to humanity, and He is the final word to Israel. And now He's coming to the conclusion of His public ministry. It ends, it ends in this passage, His public ministry to Israel. And in this passage, we have his assessment of the situation. And in this passage, we find three kinds of people. We first of all find people who have no faith. Who they have no faith. The evangelist, John, who's writing this, has reported that Jesus has come into the world to be the light of the world. He has reported, Jesus is saying, that people cannot assume, that is the people of his day, could not assume that the light would shine forever. Therefore, they must do something about the light while he is there. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. It was a challenge. It was his verdict on his public ministry. And what had happened was that it had resulted in a state of firm unbelief among the majority of the people. Look at verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him. What are Jesus' final words to Israel? While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of light. What is his assessment of their response? They still did not believe in him. What does he do in light of that? It tells us he departed and hid himself from them. Here is Jesus deliberately finally turning away from his people. 
He came to them. He came to his own home, to his own people, and his own people did not recognize him, did not believe in him. Here he is now. He has shown himself to them. He has shone the brilliant light of his presence among them over these years. He has gone to their villages and their synagogues and their temple, and he has proclaimed himself to them, and he has demonstrated his credentials in the signs and wonders he has performed. But now, now at this moment, he is turning finally away from them, deliberately turning away from them. This is the climax of his ministry. This is the greatest opportunity for salvation in history. And for these people, it is coming to a final end. That is a serious thing. It's a big thing. Here he is self-consciously withdrawing from them. And what he is doing by doing that is he is acting out a judicial warning that he has just pronounced on these people. Let's look at how this has opened up for us. The apostle helps us to see their unbelief, and he places it against the background of the signs Jesus has performed. Look at that verse again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In spite of massive, incontrovertible evidence, the people decided that Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. That's what it's saying. They concluded instead rather that he should be executed as an imposter. They refused to believe in spite of the signs. Now, the use of that word signs is quite deliberate in John's gospel. It would have immediately registered in the minds of the people to whom uh, Jesus was ministering. The idea of signs would immediately make them think of Where in our Bible have we read that word before? Well, in our Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, in their Bible, it would take them right back to that great event called the Exodus when God brought the children of Israel out from Egypt where they'd been for over 400 years. He brought them out, and they'd become slaves there, and He rescued them. And Moses, who was God's servant, had gone to Pharaoh and had performed signs. Uh, to Pharaoh. There were the plagues, for example. There was the opening up of the Red Sea. There was the provision of the manna, the manna that God left there in the morning for them so they could gather it up and they could make the manna bread or whatever it is they did with manna. And uh, there was the meat that was delivered to them, and there was water from the rock, and there was protection, and there was a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by day and fire by night that hung over the camp as a symbol of the the living, active presence of God for 40 years. For 40 years, they had sign after sign after sign after sign demonstrating that God was God and that Moses was God's servant. And what did they do? Moses summoned all Israel, said to them, You've seen all that the Lord your God did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all the land. You saw the signs. This is our word here. You saw the signs and the wonders that God did. And how did they respond to those signs? 
And Moses says to them, for example, I led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. That was a kind of practical sign. And yet, how did they respond? Moses says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What did they do with Moses the whole time he was there with them? Moses had the toughest pastoral job ever, 40 years with the same congregation. And what did they do? They grumbled, they murmured, they complained against Moses, the servant of God. So when he uses the word signs, he's recalling to their mind, in your history, you have a habit of doing this whenever God does mighty things for you. And for the last three years, these people had witnessed a series of sensational displays of Jesus' messianic identity. They'd seen their sick cured, their lame walk, their deaf hearing, their blind seeing. They'd been fed a miraculous meal. The miracles had climaxed with the raising of the dead. He had proved that He was the resurrection and the life. John has only selected seven out of what he says is so many miracles that the, all the books in the world could not contain the record of the miracles that he performed. It was as if d darkness and, and, and sin and, and disease and demons were expelled for that period in that place. It was the amazing work of God. And yet we read here, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not. You ready for that? They still did not believe. In spite of all that they'd seen and heard, they did not believe. They turned away. When, when they, what they patently saw was the work of God. And their response, let me tell you, blows out of the water every excuse for unbelief. What are some of the reasons we say we don't believe? Well, if only I could see God, then I'd believe. Or if only God would perform a miracle, then I'd believe. If only God would kind of come and do something really supernatural, then I'd believe. Let me tell you, when God did all of that stuff, this is the response. In spite of the signs, they still did not believe. Isn't that unbelievable? But then the second thing, that the apostle observes is it wasn't just in spite of the signs, but in light of the Scriptures that we see their unbelief. See, this raises a question, doesn't it? The question is, well, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, surely, surely the people have been expecting the Messiah and talking about the Messiah and being taught about the coming of the Messiah, surely they would be the, the people best placed in all the world to recognize Him. And believe in Him, maybe He's not the Messiah at all. Maybe we have to question His messianic claims. So the big question that emerges is this, how, how can Jesus be the Jews' Messiah when the Jews don't believe in Him? And John's answer is to go back to the Scripture, that is, to the Jewish Scripture. In fact, he goes back to the prophet Isaiah, which is very convenient since we know Isaiah very well in this church. Uh, perhaps we're regretting knowing him quite so well, but we, we know him very well. And he quotes from Isaiah a lot right here. He quotes from Isaiah 53 and from Isaiah chapter 6. 
And he's arguing that the very Scripture that announces the coming of the Messiah also announces the rejection of the Messiah. The Scripture foretold his rejection by his own people. Look how it begins. He quotes this, that the Old Testament prophecy might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By the way, you notice that he quotes those, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, all of the prophecy, the beginning of it, the end of it, chapter 6, chapter 53, and he says it was all Isaiah said. He believed in only one book of Isaiah. Just, I'm just saying that, that that's what John is doing here. And what Isaiah had done in his book is he had identified the coming Messiah as a son of David, as the son of God, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. He, he describes this one who's coming as the Lord and, and the one who goes before him as the forerunner is the forerunner of the Lord, preparing the way of the Lord. But when the Lord comes, in the latter part of Isaiah, he's a servant. What, what, that is not what you expect. You expect that when the Lord comes, when the king comes, he'll be all king-like. He'll have all the trappings and accoutrements of kingliness. But when the Lord comes, when the King comes, when the Son of David comes, when the anointed Messiah comes, onto the scene at the end of Isaiah, He comes as a servant. There is a contradiction there. There's a surprise there in the book of Isaiah, you see. And yet, the servant will be lifted up the servant will be exalted as high as God is exalted. It's this servant that is given divine honors. It is this servant who the whole world is called upon to bow before and recognize and acknowledge and worship and follow and serve. This servant is God become a servant. That's a remarkable thing that we find in Isaiah. But in those same Scriptures, there is this demonstration that the people to whom the servant would come would not be ready for him. Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our report? Who is speaking these words? Obviously, Isaiah is recording them and he's passing them on to us. But if you read the words very carefully, he is also obviously reporting words that come from people who are alive when the Messiah servant comes, because they're reporting on him. They're talking about him. They are announcing his arrival, and they're proclaiming what he has come to do. In fact, it goes on and makes it very clear in the second line of that verse, that poetic verse, these people who are speaking about him, the, Lord, the coming servant, are those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Now, the arm of the Lord is, you can imagine, it's a strong arm of God. Jesus is described in the New Testament as the arm of the Lord. That is, he comes to do the Lord's work and the Lord's will. He does the Lord's work in the world he talks even himself in Luke's gospel 
of himself as being the finger of God. I, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of God has arrived. So who is speaking these words? In Romans chapter 10 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that although Isaiah records these words, he is not the ultimate speaker of them. Isaiah is speaking in the character, Paul tells us, of the apostles of Christ. The speech is directed to the Lord. He's talking to the Lord. The speakers are identified only by the pronouns our and we. There's an element of uncertainty about who is speaking. Only once the questions are resolved and the Messiah comes, can we then look back and identify who these speakers are. These speakers are the apostles, the eyewitnesses and the earwitnesses of the Messiah's work and words. That's why Paul identifies them. In fact, Paul makes it even clearer. He quotes earlier in Romans chapter 10 from Isaiah 52, in which the heralds of the, of the coming Messiah are described. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. Now, that's not a kind of general statement about the state of the feet of those who preach the gospel. As you would know if you ever saw the feet of some of the people who preach the gospel. Rather, it's a reference primarily to the apostles, the people who come bringing you the gospel, the, the messengers, the, the carriers, the people who are heralding the gospel as they come. And Paul takes it that way, that those are the people who are speaking the words in chapter 53. Lord, who has believed our report? We announced what we saw. We told people what we heard. We reported on the Messiah's arrival, but who believed in us? And by the way, that interpretation is the interpretation you find in the earliest fathers like Clement and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, they all concurred that Isaiah was speaking in the persona of the apostles in using the words given to him by the Holy Spirit. Now, Isaiah, or John rather, makes two moves in his quotation from Isaiah here that you need to see. First of all, he links the signs performed to the arm of the Lord. Jesus is identified, I said, as the arm of the Lord who acts in divine power in the world. Second, John uses the Isaiah texts to describe the unbelief of the people in spite of those signs. And he notes that even this hardening, this unbelief was prophesied in advance by Isaiah. That's why he goes on then, you see, in verse 39, he says, therefore they could not believe, for, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, theologically, what is John do, speaking about here? He's, he is describing the people of Jesus' day, the Jews of people's Jesus' day, Israel, refusing the new birth, refusing the forgiveness of sins, refusing the new covenant. And their unbelief in Jesus' day is described by John in terms of Isaiah chapter 6, 
and the judicial hardening that God prophesies through Isaiah and is described there. Look at it again, verse 39, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. Now that's, actually, that's a crucial reference. John doesn't use this reference in any superficial manner, because there's already been a classic. There has been a classic story in John's gospel in chapter 9, where a lot of time is taken with this story, both in the story and in the discussion and teaching that follows it. It's a massive section. It's very important in John's gospel. And the word blinded is the word that takes you back there. It's the story of a man born blind. And when this man is healed by Jesus, he is hauled before the authorities, and they grill the man, and then they mock the man, and then they argue with the man. Then they get exasperated with the man because they find the man is more than a match for them. And here's part of their conversation. Here they are talking to this man. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. That's the authorities speaking. The man talking to the authorities replies, why, this is an amazing, a bit sarcastically, this is an amazing thing. You, the religious authorities, you don't know where he comes from. And yet, he opened my eyes. I was blind from birth. He opened my eyes, and I can see. I mean, surely if anybody's going to know where this man came from, who can do this kind of miracle, it ought to be you. You're the people with the Bible. You're the people with the knowledge. And he's kind of teasing them a bit. He's being a bit sarcastic. And he goes on to say this to them. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, then God uh, and does His will, God listens to him. And here's his punchline. Never since the world began has it been heard that anybody opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He was very courageous to say that to religious leaders. They threw him out of the temple. They, ex they excommunicated him there and then. There was no due process or anything. There was just a, out, you are out. And Jesus came looking for him. And they asked the man, Jesus asked the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said, well, I've never heard that expression before, but, but you tell me where he is, I, I'll believe in him. And Jesus says, I'm he. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus then says, For judgment I came into this world that those who see, do not see, may see, and that those who see may become blind. This is Jesus describing why he's in the world. And some of the Pharisees were told, heard him say these things, and they said to him, Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, what Isaiah presents here is a judicial hardening. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. It is a chilling commission that was given to Isaiah to preach this word that would do that to Israel. And what John is telling us here is this, that ultimately 
Israel's unbelief was not simply foreseen, it was foreordained by God's sovereign design. And that Israel's prophesied unbelief was not generally not believing in God, it was specifically not believing in the Messiah Jesus. That was the That was the crucial thing. And because they did not believe in the Messiah, Jesus, this judicial hardening, blinding, came upon them and remains to this day unless God takes the veil away, says the Apostle Paul. It remains to this day. And all this was done in fulfillment to those words written by Isaiah. And you know, It was John's testimony that he had seen the glory of the Messiah back in chapter 1. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Do you remember the story in Isaiah 6? He goes into the temple. The king is dead. King Josiah, Uzziah rather, is dead. He goes into the temple. He can't get into the temple. The temple is full of God. He sees the Lord on his throne. The king, the king, is still alive. He hasn't. He's not abdicated. He's still in command. He's still in control. And what this is telling us is this. When Isaiah saw the Lord... When he heard the seraphim singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory, they were singing about Jesus. Or we should say, the pre-incarnate Son of God. They were singing about the pre-existent Son of God who shares the glory of God. Isaiah saw Jesus before the incarnation. He saw the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began. John is telling us that the glory of Jesus existed long before he saw it and long before Isaiah saw it. For he shared the glory of God from all eternity. That's why he is high and exalted. So here in this first part of the passage, we have this reigning unbelief that has gripped the minds and hearts of the people. Somebody has turned that clock forward. I'm quite sure of it. Uh, But that's the wrong, that must be the wrong time. Uh, I think I'm going to follow the second hand, actually. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm just going to throw out these last two points very, very quickly. So there's people with no faith. There's people with deficient faith. You can't, get, you can't go through these last chapters of John without seeing this plot to get rid of him in the background. And so we read about these people. Nevertheless, we're told, verse 42, there were many of the authorities believed in him, that is, in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They are non-confessing believers. Isn't that an interesting concept. Actually, the Bible often puts believing and confessing together. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I was given that verse when I was about 10 in our little Christian Endeavor group. And I had to memorize it. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Those two things go together, don't they, in in our Christian life. And when somebody is a believer and they don't confess it, then you're left wondering, are you really a believer? Do you really believe? We're meant to wonder. We're meant to wonder. We're meant to ask the question. These leaders, we're told, some of them, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. But it gets worse. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of ecclesiastical sanctions on them. And here's the punchline. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When John Knox visited Scotland during the reign of Mary Guise of France, she was the regent of Scotland. Mary Guise was sending many believers to their deaths for confessing the Reformed faith. And so John Knox had to sneak into Scotland and he would meet uh, at privately arranged supper parties in the homes of the aristocracy and people would come together and there he met with many of these aristocrats and important figures who had been converted to the Reformed faith. It was kind of a mass movement, actually, among the aristocracy in Scotland to the Reformed faith. And they were discussing the question. Here they were. They were resolved. The Reformed faith was right. They were uncomfortable with going to the mass. They were concerned about all the superstitious practices. They wondered whether it was possible to believe in the Lord and follow His way in secret and not say anything and get into trouble. Knox pointed out to them that they couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. You can't allow the fear of man to keep you silent. What are these ISIS people asking these people in Syria and in Iraq and elsewhere? What are they asking these Christians as they kneel down with their hands tied and their feet tied? Renounce your faith in Jesus. That's all you have to do. And what are they not doing? They're not renouncing their faith in Jesus. And what's happening to them? They get to glory quicker. Believing and confessing belong together. These people had a deficient faith. And do you see the punchline? They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That goes to the heart of the matter. Why is it I keep quiet? Because I don't want people to think that I'm a numpty. Numpty is an English word for a clown or somebody that doesn't know anything. I don't want people to think of me like that. I want people to think that I'm, you know, I have gravitas and I'm intelligent and I know what I'm talking about. But you have to be a fool for Christ's sake, you see. It's the way it goes. Well, there were some people with a saving faith. That's the last paragraph. You can read it for yourself. It's very clear, very straightforward. Jesus cries out, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me alone, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me has seen the one who sent me. I've come into the world as light. Whoever believes in me 
may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word, doesn't keep them. I don't judge them. I've come to save the world. But that word will judge them. That word will judge them. So here's Jesus then telling us that to believe in him is to believe in God. To believe in him is to step into the light. To believe in Jesus is to find the Savior of the world. What does he save us from? Eternal judgment on the last day. He saves us from separation from God from all eternity. He saves us for eternal life. So Jesus is very conscious. He's been sent into the world to proclaim the fact that people come into a right relationship with God by believing in Him. So what does saving faith look like? Saving faith lays hold of Jesus. Saving faith clings to Jesus. Saving faith trusts in Jesus. Saving faith is a faith that casts itself on Him. Saving faith is not focused on how much faith I have. It's focused on how great Jesus is. And as I reach out to Him, as I rest in Him, as I trust in Him, so I find this great salvation. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Father, we thank you for your son. And we thank you that your son has come into the world in many ways to divide humanity around himself. We pray that tonight we would be convinced in our own minds of where we are in relation to him. We thank you that He did not come that first time to judge but to save. But we know that he's coming again a second time. And that second time he will judge. He will be the judge. The one who was the Savior will be the judge. We want to, on that day, be on his side as our Savior. And we pray that tonight, Lord, you would help us to trust in him and cast all of ourselves upon him. In his strong name we pray. Amen.